Hey everyone, my name is Matt Boyd and I'm the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church. Sojourn is a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. We hope that this sermon both inspires you and challenges you to live a life of intentionality where you seek to make disciples. If you'd like to learn more about our church family, you can go online and check out our website at sojournpdx.org. Enjoy this sermon. Thank you, Patrick and Davey, for leading us in worship through song from Woodstock Community Church. And appreciate that word, Patrick. Uh, if I can be transparent before we get into tonight's passage, I've been struggling with unbelief myself this week. And so it hasn't really been well in my spirit and my soul. And so appreciate that word. And even this morning as I got to worship with Woodstock Community Church. And so let me pray for us before we get started that um, God would help our unbelief. I have a feeling I'm not the only one who's maybe struggled with that this week and that it would be well with our soul. God, we just want to thank you again for this time. Thank you that we can get together as two uh, churches in the city of Portland. God, churches that you are shaping and forming. And God, if we can just be lay it all out there and be honest, there's, there's moments of unbelief, moment of uncertainty. God, even last week as we looked at you being able to do things far more abundantly than we think or ask or even imagine, and then dealing with the week where where we, at least I found myself questioning that at times. And so God, may we be able to declare that it is well with our soul. Lord, we ask for forgiveness in those areas of unbelief. Help us believe and trust in you, knowing that you can do really anything that you want, that you are God, that you are in control. In your name we pray, amen. So tonight we're starting our second half of our series, United in Christ, in the book of Ephesians, where we've been for the last several weeks. I think we're on week six or seven now. And we've seen this theme of Christ uniting all things, both things in heaven and things on earth, to himself. And tonight, as we continue, we're actually going to see a shift in the tone from Paul, who's the author, one of the most influential uh, persons in the New Testament, uh, had his own radical story of coming to Christ and then planted many churches and authored much of the New Testament. Testament. And up to this point, he's focused primarily on what Christ has done in your life. So in the Ephesians life and in, in our life, in those first three chapters. And what he's going to do now, four through six, is he's shifting. And really he's saying this is now how you respond to that reality of those things that you have, that he's declared over us in those first three chapters. And so during the first part of his letter, Paul's presented them with this reality of who they are in Christ. So we continually see in Christ you're this, in Christ you're this. If you remember last week, I think I listed about 30 different actions that have been declared over them in Christ. And so now he's going to start out this week and say, you need to live in response, or really a proper response to that reality. And so he's calling them to respond to the actual reality not how they feel or sense reality. And I phrase it that way strategically because we all know, even as I was just sharing, your emotions can get in the way. You can sense something is one way because of how the day went or how the weather went or whatever surroundings around you. But ultimately what Christ has declared over you is the, the, the actual reality, regardless of what your emotions say. And so hopefully we'll be able to flesh that out a little bit and be able to explain that to you a little bit further as we, we get deeper into the passage. And regardless how old you are in this room, I know we've got people down as young as three years old, and then we've got people on up from there. Most of your life is lived in a response to something. And that's what Paul is really calling the Ephesians to do. So you need to live in response to this reality. Let me give you an example. My dad and many in his generation didn't grow up with a whole lot. 
And so, um, interesting enough, he comes from a pretty large family. He was one of five, always had to share things. My mom was one of six. And even though many in their generation didn't have as much as we do now, the families have gotten smaller. And so, uh, you would think that it would have been the opposite. And so, having one of five or one of six, they always had to share something. My dad tells stories of being squeezed in the back seat with his siblings. And, you know, it was okay then. You could get away with it. And so we live in a city where if you have a kid before 30, you're considered weird. And if you have more than one kid, you're also considered weird. Yet if you have two or three dogs and a couple of cats, that is normal. So I'm not sure who makes the rules in the city of Portland, but that is a context that we have found ourselves in today. But the point being that my, my dad grew up where he didn't have a whole lot. My grandfather worked on the shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia. He always had to share things. There just wasn't enough for a family of seven for everything to go around. And so my dad tells lots of stories. And one of those that really sticks out in my mind is, is they used to eat sloppy joes on a pretty regular basis, except for there was one problem. They didn't have ground beef. Now, once again, we're in Portland, so you might be a vegan or you might be a vegetarian. You're going, what's the problem with not having ground beef? Well, this was before it was popular and cool to be a vegan and a vegetarian. So not having ground beef means you're basically eating sauce on a piece of bread. So you're just eating a saucy bun called a sloppy joe. And so that's how poor they were. They just didn't have money to, to really eat a, a, a full meal. And so he tells stories of how his own parents would steal money from him or they would borrow money without asking, which is another way to say that they stole money from him. He had mason jars where he would keep all of his money and hide it in the closet or under his bed, but his parents would find out. And so as a result of my dad's environment, he found himself working really hard to escape this reality. And so he got jobs from a very young age. He had a paper route. He saved like crazy, and he was determined that he would not live the same life that he grew up under. Fast forward 40 years later, and my father has always been known as a man that works hard. He sacrifices for his family, and he is one that's able to provide. And, and as a result, I grew up with many things my dad didn't have, and I got to do many things he didn't get to do. He talks about how he never got to go to summer camp. He would always remind me every year when I went to summer camp, he'd say, when I was a kid, I never got to go to summer camp because we never had enough money. So he always likes to remind me of that as well. I uh, appreciate it, Dad, if you listen to this later on. And so my parents, while that, I wouldn't call them hoarders, if you have seen that show, which by the way, if you're having a really bad week or down week, just watch hoarders. It'll make you feel better about yourself. And so if um, I wouldn't say they're hoarders, but they do have a lot of stuff which is one way I would describe their generation. They're a generation full of things. And it's easy for it to be critical. You know, we kind of come from the, the minimalism generation and we want to get rid of a lot of stuff. We don't want to have a whole lot of things. And so um, a large part of them having so many things though is because they grew up with nothing. So it's as a response to how they grew up, as a response to their environment. The point of me telling you all that is that we live life in this way. As we live out of response to something that happened to us, that could be good experiences or that could be bad experiences. And so maybe you were in a bad relationship in the past and that person that you're in a dating relationship with or, or whatever could have been a marriage they own a motorcycle and that relationship was just really bad maybe they treated you bad it ended badly and so now as a result when you start dating the next person you get that next relationship if you find out they're interested in a motorcycle or maybe they own a motorcycle all of a sudden you start questioning the relationship and you start questioning that person as a result because of the uh, bad memories from the previous relationship, even though that's not fair to the new relationship. Maybe you grew up in a performance-driven home. So even now as an adult, you always have to be the best. You have to succeed. You have to be the one who gets the promotions at work or, or maybe on game night, you're the one that has to win. And if you don't win, you're the one who tosses over the Monopoly board with all of the pieces. Or maybe you know someone that was killed in a car accident on the interstate. And as a result, you've always been scared to drive on the highway or you've been scared to go over 50 miles per hour. Congratulations, you moved to the right city if you don't want to go faster than that. But you've been, you know, as a response to a bad experience that traumatized you, that is how you are now living your life going forward. 
And so it is normal. That is human nature to live in response to our upbringing or to a wound from the past. But what Paul is telling us is that we should, we should live in a response. He's saying that part is, is what you should be doing, but not to past hurts or even your upbringing. Paul's saying we should live in response to the grace, the mercy, and love of God that he has shown us from the first three chapters. And so tonight we're going to see Paul start chapter 4 by turning towards the exhortation of the church at Ephesus. And we're going to try to get through the first 16 verses which we will cover tonight, and it's really broken down into three sections. The first is we'll see the exhortation to unity. The second part is we'll see the exhortation to different gifts. And the third part is we'll see the gifts of edification of the church. By the way, there's a lot packed into these verses. I am not going to do a nuance of, of, of everything we could do. I wrestled this week. Do I to turn this into two sermons or three sermons? Ultimately, I landed on doing one sermon. Uh, but there's a lot here that we're not going to necessarily get into the, the intricately details. And so if there's something, man, I want, I want more of that. Maybe we can get into that on Thursday night in our gospel community. Or this is a great way for me to plug what we call tables here, which is our discipleship groups. Two or three of you can get together and say, man, let's just go really deep on these 16 verses and, and kind of flesh out what all is, is, is meant here. And so our main idea is that Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to maintain unity, to use their gifts, and to grow in spiritual maturity. So look with me now, starting in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. We will start in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some blue ones there in the back. And let me go ahead and get started for us. Paul says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so Paul starts out exhorting his audience to take their walk with the Lord seriously as he himself has done. So in a sense he's saying, look at my example of what I have done. As I've taken this seriously, I exhort you to also take this seriously. So Paul not only committed himself to the Lord's service, but also to suffer as a result. And so I'm not necessarily saying suffering has to be part of it, although we are told in Scripture that suffering is normal. And so sometimes I would say it this way, if you haven't suffered at all, if you haven't experienced spiritual warfare, then, then maybe there's something else going on there. And so Paul here, he's been in prison and saying, I'm willing to suffer for this, and now I also want to call you to this same uh, accountability and the same calling. And so he's calling the Ephesians, and he's calling us to live a life worthy of our calling, which includes, let's kind of refresh here, our adoption, our holiness, and our unity that we've received in the first three chapters. So he's saying, live in light of this. Live as a result of these things. And so Paul calls them to live this out, and he says to live out a certain way. He says do it with humility and with patience and in love. Now let's just be honest. It is not easy to live humble and patient lives. Well, they say patience is a virtue, but most of us have very little patience. Just this week, I find myself getting frustrated many times because I'd emailed somebody, or I called somebody, or I texted somebody, and then my work was delayed. I kind of had to put it on pause because now I'm waiting on them to get back to me. This could be anything from t-shirts for Sojourn, or we got some Easter events coming up, or you know whatever it may be. And so I find myself just getting frustrated. Like, man, I really wish this person would get back to me because I want to I want to move forward. By the way, if you're the person who gets a text message, try to respond respond back to people within a reasonable amount of time. I'm not saying immediate response, but you know, 24 hours is kind of a good window unless you're just out without service, which could happen. But try to get back to people. It's just the way you communicate in life. <laughs> and he tells them, you are to conduct your lives with love as we bear with one another and work towards unity by the Spirit. It's really hard to live this way. Why? Well, People and relationships are really difficult. We've kind of covered this in the last couple of weeks. It's, it's, 
it's hard to live within relationships with one another. We've all been hurt by our past. We've all got relationships that we can point to. Man, that did not go the way that I anticipated. We had that person that was our BFF. Maybe it's from childhood. And you said, man, we're going to be best friends forever. We've got the, the bracelets. Maybe you went as far as got on tattoos together. And then hopefully you didn't because then you got to get covered up. But now they won't even talk to you. Maybe, maybe now they've blocked you on social media. That's like another whole level, right? Like, okay, they don't talk to me anymore. And now I'm, I'm going to look them up on Facebook. I've been blocked from them. I can't even see what they're posting now on Facebook. Like, how dare they? Who do they think they are? I've shared this with you before, but if I'm, if I'm honest, it's, it's still painful for me, so I'll go through this fast so I don't get emotional, but one of my best friends for more than 15 years and his wife, they moved out here to help us plant this church a couple of years ago, and uh, him and his wife, after a mere four months, they, they left. They, they moved on. They didn't want anything to do with church. They didn't want anything with Sojourn. They didn't want to do anything with the city of Portland, and so it's been a year and a half since him and I've spoken. I'll be honest, it's painful. It's really, really hard for me. But what this passage is telling us is that that should have never happened within relationships within the church, within Christ. Not the way that it went down. He says we are to maintain the unity that has already been given and provided to us in the Spirit. So this isn't by our power that we maintain this unity. It's by the Spirit's power that we maintain this unity. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So we, as the body of Christ, have been called to a city within a city. We're, we're a new race. Remember a few weeks we talked about Jews and Gentiles and they made them equal and really created a new race that Christ was calling to himself. It's no longer about our, our own little kingdoms. It's now about his kingdom. And collectively, that's what we should be we focused on is his kingdom. And that our body is in living by one Holy Spirit for all of eternity. So this means that we no longer live for ourselves. Right? That, that itself is really hard. It's really challenging. We talked about like we want to be sacrificial with our time, our talent, and our treasure. And what does that look like for you? That's going to look different for each person. But he says we are called to one hope as we share our collective identity in Jesus. And he says collectively we've been given one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And so Paul's point is reality, really saying, you guys all, we all have the same story. And I would say that to us in here tonight. We all have the same story. So our individual stories, our, what we call our testimonies, may be different. How you came to Christ. Maybe some of you, it seems like it was a worse past than others. Maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you didn't. But regardless, he says, ultimately you all have the same story because you're ultimately united by Christ into the same family. We all have the exact same need which was for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and to accept that good news, what we call the gospel. And this entire passage is referring to the unity of body of Christ. In fact, your Bible probably says that before, like the title for all these verses. And here's the thing. We've all experienced a lack of unity, including in the church, if you've been in church any length of time, unless you've only been part of this church and then maybe you haven't experienced that. But even, even our small church, you may have experienced that lack of unity because we're human and we're flawed. One of the internal struggles I have as I watch many in our generation, regardless how old you are in here, is that when things get uncomfortable or difficult, what do people do today? They just leave. They just, they just flee it. They just get off the exit. They're on the highway and they go, man, this is getting challenging. I'm just going to get off the exit ramp here. And unfortunately, our generation has done a great job of making that acceptable and normal. That it's just normal part of life now that you can just leave a relationship. That's why so many in our generation get divorced. Because it's just easier to walk away than to fight through the issues that you're having. But let me tell you something. This is not acceptable. 
Let me say that again. It is not acceptable just to flee and just to leave a relationship. It's especially unacceptable for those that are in Christ. There, I said it. Maybe you're uncomfortable now. Maybe you're thinking about a relationship that you've done that to recently. If you've done that, contact them tonight. Tell them you want to meet with them and get coffee. If you don't have the money, I'll pay for your coffee and get reconciled with that person. So maybe you feel uncomfortable when I'm talking about this. I've only got one shot to make you feel uncomfortable, so hopefully I've done it. You're welcome. This is especially uncomfortable if you're part, unacceptable if you're part of sojourn. We are siblings. We are a family under Jesus. And so we need to be known as those that stay, that fight, and that have the hard conversations within an authentic family relationship. We also need to assume positive intent with dealing with one another. You know what I found out? It's really easy to find the bad in people when you're looking for the bad in people. It's just really easy to do that. We t- and we tend to talk about someone rather than talk to someone. Right? This is the trend that I've seen happening. And it's, it's really just kind of coming to the church. And it's, it's split large churches apart. And it's, it's, it's stunning the growth of small churches. So we need to get to the place where we talk to someone rather than about someone. And, and seeking forgiveness. And we need to be for, eager to forgive people. We kind of like to hoard that. Like, ah, oh, you owe me. Like, no, we are called to a unity. So we need to be eager to forgive people. We need to be willing to meet with people and, and stay and fight and have those hard conversations within the church. We are to be the representatives to those outside. That's what the people outside of the church should be living like. They're the ones who should be fleeing relationships. They're the ones that should be shooting, seeing think splits happen. We should be the example. Say, why, why is it you're able to get along? Right? The church should be made up of all different types of people. He talks about the diversity the church we made up of, made up as, where it should really reflect a group that you can't see anywhere else. Why is it you can have all those people together? Because we're united under the banner of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis captures this well when he says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in you. So that is the posture that we are to take, the posture that we are to live. He moves on to the next set of verses, and starting verse 7, and Paul goes to a place that it can seem confusing, but let me read it and see if we can hopefully get some kind of explanation to it. He says, But grace was given to each of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So what Paul is actually doing in this, this section right here is he's quoting Psalm 68:18, or citing it rather, which is, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. In other words, the one who ascends is triumphant, the Lord God. And we can spend a lot of time on this point, but think of it this way. In the incarnation of Jesus, Christ descended from the heavens to the lower regions, the earth, which is the place where he suffered, the place where he died, and the place that he was buried. This is what we're, we're about to look at on, on Good Friday that's coming up here in just a couple weeks. But this is also the place where he defeated death and he rose again, which we're going to celebrate on Easter. So we're two weeks away from that. And then it tells us in Acts 1.9 that 40 days later he ascended back to where he originally came from, to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And while Christ ascended back to heaven, He also left us with gifts, and and He also left us with certain roles for certain people for the purpose of building up the church so that we might grow in this unity and this maturity and stature, which we're going to look at starting in verse 11. It says, And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Theologian Marcus Barth called chapter 4 the constitution of the church, and he considered verses 11 and 12 as the way in which the church is organized for gospel movement. And so specifically he's referring to what is commonly referred to as apest. Now some of you have an idea what I'm talking about when I say that. Others are like, what are you talking about? What is this apest thing? Meaning apostolic, prophetic, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. He covers those roles in this set of verses. Let me give you a brief definition on each one of those before we move on, just in case you're not really familiar with what I'm talking about. Apostle, technically this referred to the original 12 that followed Jesus, which we no longer have those types of apostles, or what I would call capital A apostles. But also, apostle can broadly mean sent ones, defined as one who proclaims the gospel and plants the gospel in a new place. And so not always, but oftentimes overseas missionaries and then church planters, such as myself, would be called apostolic, kind of little a apostles. And so, um, you know, this is kind of the sent out work that we're doing, that we're responsible for. Prophet... That would be one that it communicates God's truth to God's people. Evangelists are those gifted in proclaiming the gospel. Now, I want to note that we're all called to evangelize, but you probably know someone who's uniquely gifted in evangelism, who just sees multi, you know, many people respond to when the gospel is proclaimed. Shepherd or, or shepherd pastor is one who oversees and cares for God's people. And then teacher is one who instructs God's people in truth. And so there's been much debate over the years, if this is new to you, as to whether these roles still exist. Some, some commentaries say they, they do exist. Some say that half of them cease to exist. And so there's been a lot of debate. Um, whether they were given to every Christ follower is another debate. Is this for just the leaders? Is this for everyone in the church? Or if these roles were, were only given to the leaders in the church? And so what I do want to say and know is that the giver of these gifts is Christ himself. And we see that every single Christ follower... And so if you say, I'm in Christ, I follow Christ, you have been given gifts, and you've been given gifts for different purposes, ultimately all for building up of the church of Christ. And these giftings are listed, and there's roles that are listed that Jesus uses to make himself known through us. This is what Paul meant when he said in, in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So in other words, there's nothing for us to strive here. This isn't anything about you, but it's ultimately for something for us to walk in. And so for us to rest in the finished work of Jesus, regardless what role and what gifting he has given you within the church. Sometimes we can kind of be jealous of different individuals and well, why do they have this and why do they have that? Like, no, God's using all of us. We all have gifts, so there's no argument there. We all have gifts. And so are you living out those gifts? Are you walking in those gifts as Christ is working in our midst? And the purpose we see with these ministries is there are roles given for certain individuals to live out as Christ builds up his church. And so the work of the leader then is to equip others in the work of ministry. And so he says, as some who are apostles and there's some who are prophets, there are some who are evangelists and some who are shepherds and some who are teachers. And together, what, once again, what I call apest, together they make up the equipping of all of the church us collectively. And so each plays their part and those around them are equipped by these ministries. Let me give you just a brief example. So if someone is living as an evangelist, it isn't 
just about sharing the gospel with people, although that's a very clear big part of evangelism. It's also about helping others share the gospel with those around them. So there's an equipping component that the evangelist wants to make sure that all of us are sharing the gospel with all of our relationships around us. If you're a teacher, it's not just about helping others get rooted in their knowledge and understanding of what God has declared. Rather, you're helping others teach those that they're also discipling, which hopefully that means all of us are discipling people and the teachers are helping equip all of us to be able to teach other people. We've seen movements around the globe. I don't think we've really seen a true one in the U.S. happen, but we've seen movements around the globe with this idea of called T for T, and it's, it's training for trainers or teaching for teachers, where they're, they're just teaching. You continue to disciple people who disciples another person, who disciples another person. And that's really what we're hoping here at Sojourn. And, and if you kind of say, like, all right, how are we going to grow and when are we going to start growing? It's, we're going to start growing when all of us are all in, and we're, gonna, we're starting to reach out to all those relationships around us, and we're starting to disciple people. Because as we all disciple people, then we're going to see more people respond to the gospel, more people get connected to the church, and then we're going to see a growth happen. And then hopefully we can multiply that out all throughout the city of Portland. And so Christ has given gifts to all believers, but he's also given the gift of some to leadership in the church. So we're told that. Not all of us are called to be leaders within, within the body. And so what this is technically saying is that, even for myself, kind of a, I'll say a humble brag here, as the leader of Sojourn, like, I am a gift to the church, not based on my merit or what I'm telling you, but based on what Paul is telling you tonight. And so whether you ever thought of me as a gift or not, I hope you do tonight. I hope, my, hope Andrea was listening to this and that she tells me at home, thank you for this gift. That No, but that I've been given to equip you guys. I've been given to equip the church. But also, that's not really the point of this. Look at verse 12. But he also gave the church the gift of you. And so he kind of mentions the leaders, but then he skips on and says, no, he's given the gift of you, the church, the body. And so most often when people hear the term ministry, they think of someone like me. They think of someone who went to seminary, who has an MDiv, who's, who's been an overseas missionary, who's a pastor or church planner or whatever terminology or, or title they'll put next to it. But that's not what this text is actually saying. It does refer to equippers. It does say, hey, there are some who are supposed to equip, right? And so they have a role to play. But then it says, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christ follower, then you are a gift to the church and that you are called into ministry. Now, for some of you, that may be a brand new idea or concept. Maybe it's not. But even if it's something you didn't realize you were signing up for, and before you freak out and run to another church, let me, this is what it's telling us. The day you became a Christian, the day you linked yourself with Christ, is the day that you were called into full-time ministry. And so if, if that was when you were a little, little kid, or if that was last week, either way, at that moment, you were called into full-time ministry. And Sojourn, I would say, is built on the foundation of ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. That's what I want us to be known for. I don't care where your paycheck comes from. I don't care if you work for UPS. I don't care if you work for a bank, for a school, if you're unemployed, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you raise funds, or if you don't have a job at all. I don't really care, but you were called into full-time ministry. It's a job for every single one of us. And my job is to help equip you in that so that we can all collectively do ministry as Christ builds his church. And so if you consider sojourn your church, you consider yourself a Christ follower, then you are a minister of this church and ultimately of Jesus Christ. So when people ask you what you do, say, I'm a minister. Now, maybe don't, because trust me, it doesn't help in Portland it's, it's, if people get weirded out by that. And so the various giftings from verse 11 are to equip the saints which includes all Christians. Remember back to Ephesians 1, seven weeks ago, we talked about how we are all saints. So yes, we define this different than Catholics. We're probably never going to make a statue of you and worship you or pray to you or give offerings or whatever it is that they do exactly. But you are a saint because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And so that, that we can all do the work of ministry. 
And it says that, that all Christians have spiritual gifts that are to be used ministering to one another. If you think about it, even equipping, like really it's just discipleship. So we're all equippers in our own right, whether it's, whether it's in the, the church kind of corporately or just out there throughout the week. But we all are equippers because really equipping is discipleship and we're all called to go and make disciples. And, and there's a diverse gifts that are, that are to bring unity to Christ's people, which brings about mature manhood. Verse 13, he says, "...to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God." to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so as we live in response to this reality in verses 12 through 14, that is ours in Christ, well, the result, he says, is mature believers. Paul Tripp tells us this, Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and a non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into His kingdom, and progressively changing them into His likeness, and He wants you to be part of it. And so He's building us up as the church and building us into the maturity that, that He wants and that He's designing for us. Immaturity and truths of Christian doctrine make the church look like a gullible group of people. He tells us that some will be kind of tossed to and fro by, by waves and winds of deceitful schemes of false teachers. I had some Jehovah's Witnesses come by my door yesterday. But let me tell you, their marketing is getting much better. The only dead giveaway was on the front. They had these people wearing suits and ties that looked like people from maybe where I grew up, but I knew like that's not Portland. And then the way the ladies were dressed kind of gave it away too. Uh, aside from that though, their marketing, as I'm looking at it, I was like, wow, they're doing a really excellent job. But that is a cult. That, that is not what we believe and what we follow. And so, but some people, you know, which if they're new in the faith, some people are like, that sounds really similar. And it, it, it sounds good. It sounds similar to what maybe, maybe Matt's saying on Sunday nights. Like, no, we got to be careful with those things. I think about my youngest, Oliver. He's three and a half and he, he went potty for the very first time this week. So you should congratulate him afterwards and reward him with cinnamon rolls. He sat on the potty for about two hours and finally went potty. He's too young for, to be embarrassed by this, but maybe one day. So yes, that means I have a three and a half year old still in diapers. Now, before you're too quick to judge, especially those of you without kids, contact me in a few years when you have kids and let me know how the whole potty training thing is going. It happens faster for some and slower for others. But my point is that Oliver's three and a half years old. Naturally, he's immature. I don't know a three and a half year old who's not immature. Now, I don't want him to be in diapers forever. And eventually, hopefully sooner than later, he will be out of those diapers. And I don't anticipate whenever we're dropping him off for college that he'll still be wearing pampers. Like, hey, Oliver, make sure you got your suitcase over here full of pampers. Like, I don't think that's actually going to happen. It could, but I don't, I don't think that it will. And so Paul has that same hope for us as Christ followers. He doesn't want us wandering around in, in uh, Christian diapers, you know, years and years later. He wants us to grow into maturity in Christ. And so some of us in this room, maybe we need to grow up. Maybe we need to grow into this maturity. And what does that mean? I don't care what your actual age is, but if you've been following Christ for any length of time, like what does it mean to mature in Christ? And you know what? Part of that is the church collectively. That's what he's talking about, that we're going to build one another up and we're going to equip one another. We're going to disciple one another. You guys know this. A way to find discipleship here and really, really evangelism is two sides of the same coin. We disciple people to Jesus or in Jesus. So if they don't know Christ, we're saying, man, we're going to disciple them to Jesus. We don't necessarily tell them that, but you know, that's what we're doing. We grab coffee and lunch and just hanging out as neighbors. But if you say, man, I'm in Christ. Like, I don't, I don't need that. Well, we all still need the gospel, so we're going to go further in Christ with one another. And that's what he's talking about is we build each other up. 
We're told in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-3, through 3, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good. And so he wants us to grow up into the salvation that's already been given to us in Jesus. Nothing that we have to work for. And Paul mentions three ways in which believers are tossed and blown. He says, by every wind of doctrine. So what he's really saying is just false doctrine. You know, something new comes out. And every few years, there'll be a, a known pastor, what we call rock star or mega church pastor, and they'll leave their church and they'll write a book. And, and everyone's kind of questioning like, oh no, did we get it wrong over those years? And maybe this guy's right. In most cases, they'll say, look back throughout Orthodox Christianity and history and don't follow with what this new thing is, is, is doing. The second way is by human cunning. So kind of trickery. Right? And that's why I say Jehovah's Witnesses. They're out there with these pamphlets. It's like, man, that, that sounds really similar. They're really nice. They remembered my name because they came to my house a few weeks ago and they had it down. Hey, Matt, how are you doing? To make me feel like, oh, this is nice. Like, I've got a friend now and these two ladies who I don't even know. And the third way is by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And this is why, this is why believers were strongly encouraged to be grounded in apostolic teaching. Which is why we, we tend to preach expositionally here. We like to kind of go verse by verse. We don't always get as nuanced as we, we would like to. But we want to make sure that we're in the Bible. That we're not just coming up with a bunch of TED Talks. Because we could go to hear way better TED Talks somewhere else in the city. But we want to be in the Bible. We want to, that's why we have our gospel community. So we can go a little bit further and live life on life, family. Which is why we want to have tables, what we call our discipleship groups. And so we can grow into mature followers. Every single one of us. And some of us, I think at times, we're, we're at risk of being tossed and blown around by every, every trend and every, every new thing that kind of comes out. I'm firmly convicted that one of the ways that Christ followers are being tossed and blown today is the very thing that Paul is talking to with the Ephesians, is the lack of commitment to the body, the church. Really, this, this, this letter was... Uh, we've talked about this as a circulator to churches, not only to the church at Ephesus, and it's been so good for me. I don't know about for you, but it's made me be even more committed to the church, if that's possible. You think a church planner, you're going to be committed to the church, but I'm more committed to the church now than I was eight weeks ago as I study this. I don't see how we can get separated from the church at all. But, but sometimes you'll hear a question like this. Well, how involved should I be in the church? I would say based on this letter, the entire letter of Ephesians, and based on this chapter, that... When, when someone says, how much do I want to be involved in the church? I say, well, how much, how much of Christ do you want to be in your life? Right? How much do you want to actually know your Savior? That's how much you should be involved in your church. Because he's told us that he's the head, we are the body. And, you, and you, you're like, someone wants to sever the head of Christ or sever the body away from Christ. Like, no, the, the head and the body got to go together. That's how this thing works. And so that's how much you need to be involved in the church. Because according to Ephesians... The church is plan A. There is no plan B. This is where God put his power. Now, he could have done it somewhere else. God could have put his power in this chair and said, reach the world, because he's God. But he didn't do that. God's going to put it in the church, which is the people, the body of Christ. A former pastor of mine would often point out that 39 of 40 miracles in the book of Acts happen outside the walls of the church. Or in our cases, we don't even own this building, happen outside the walls of this gathering. So where is the power of God? The power of God is within you. So that's, that's why I, I look at Sunday nights as a time we can get together and celebrate. They're not, are they, sometimes are they encouraging, sometimes discouraging? Yes. But hopefully it's a time we can celebrate what God is doing. We can sing some songs of praise and worship Him. We can pray. We can slow down of the chaos of the day and the week. We can celebrate the Lord's Supper. We can have some coffee, some pastries. And then we can send each other back out into our week where we live most of our life, next to our neighbors and our coworkers, and say, this is where... 
This is where we're going to see those miracles happen, where we see life change happen. I think as we're gearing up towards Easter, this is the one time a year across our nation, even in Portland, people are a little more sensitive. I had uh, lunch this week with a, with a neighbor who I've mentioned before. I won't name his name, but as we're having lunch, naturally, Easter comes up. So it's a great opportunity. This is the one time of year where it's a little less weird to talk about it. Now, I've already said if you believe that a guy was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, rose again, they already think you're weird. And so this time of year, it's a little bit, little bit less weird. And so I encourage you, and I say that, I say, get it, like, be sharing. Open your mouth. I think evangelism sometimes just starts by opening our mouth. And here's an interesting thought. Never in the New Testament are we commanded to come into the church. Now, it's, it's kind of risky saying that, but we're never commanded in the church. Apparently, people have listened to this before, if you look around tonight. The church, however, is frequently commanded to go into the world. And so as you look back a few verses, as one given the role and responsibility and really a weight of an equipper, I want to make sure that we all feel equipped to obey the Great Commission. It's really easy to tell you to obey the Great Commission. It's easy to say, you need to go and make disciples. And I could do that heavy-handed and hit you upside the head, which is not what I want to do. But I want to make sure that I'm taking this responsibility seriously. I want us to leave this place each week, and I want us all to be strategically and intentionally going to the places where God has placed us. The, the person you live next to, the person that's sitting next to you in your cubicle, the person's dog that you train, those aren't by accident. There's a, there's a reason that God has strategically placed that person in your life. Will the gospel be reclaimed here when we gather? Absolutely. I hope, I hope so. And I hope that non-believers will come in. But as we know, the stats show us most cases that's not going to happen, at least not initially. They're going to hear the gospel out of your mouth before they hear the gospel out of my mouth. Do I fervently believe in discipleship? Absolutely. But I believe the majority of gospel proclamation and discipleship is going to happen outside of what we do here on Sunday nights. I sincerely do. It's got to be how we're living throughout the week. And, and if you're with me, you go, man, I want us to grow and how we're going to grow and when's it going to happen. Once again, it's going to happen as we're all living this out, out there as a response to what has been declared over us and what Paul has declared over us in these first three chapters. And finally, he wraps up in verse 15 by saying, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so the truth must be marked and spoken in love. This is why I don't want to do it heavy-handed. It needs to be done in love. And truth is what leads to Christian maturity, which Paul defines this here. He says Christian maturity is growing up into Christ. Christ being the head that leads us, he directs us, and then guides his body, the church. So you say, who's who's the leader of sojourn? The leader of sojourn is Jesus. And and, and Jesus has given me a role underneath that. But ultimately, who's the head of our church? It's Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that we we need each other in our lives. We're not supposed to do this by ourselves. And the reality is we all have areas of brokenness and places where we're blind and vulnerable and sometimes stupid. Okay, I've got, I've got countless stories, and maybe you do too, of, of friends who've maybe had a moment of weakness, a moment of vulnerability, and as a result, they made a stupid decision, maybe a, a sinful decision. And I don't say that to judge. I say that because that could be any of us, myself included. This is why we need each other. You need me, and I need you to speak the truth into my life because we all have these areas of blindness. This is why I encourage you to be in those discipleship groups so we can know what's really happening in your life. It's really easy to come here for an hour, an hour and a half, and pretend everything's going just fine and dandy. But what about when you're by yourself? What what is going on in your heart? What is going on in your life? And where is it that you're having a, a, a blinder? I hit on this earlier, but 
running from community doesn't fix our problems. Tim Keller this week tweeted this. If you know what that is, look it up. He said, everyone says they want community and deep friendship. However, because it takes accountability and commitment, we run the other way. That one really impacted me. It really hit me. Because the reality is we don't need to run from community. What we need to do is we need to lean into the community that God is providing for us. We need to allow others to speak into our lives in love so that we can maintain unity, that we can operate out of our God-given gifts, and that we can grow into spiritual maturity. That's what Paul is saying, is that, yes, we need God, but we need each other as well. So here's what we're going to do as a way of response as we wrap up. We're going to move into a time of celebration. We're going to move into a time of reflection as we take the elements of communion, the Lord's Supper. And when we take this, this is a reminder for us that as we break the bread, that this represents Christ's body that was broken for us. And as we dip that bread into the wine, that Jesus' blood was shed for us on the cross. As always, if you need to talk with someone, if you need prayer, I'll be in the back. You can fill out a card if you want someone to just be praying for you this week. And so what I'll do is I'm going to pray for us. Well, we're going to respond through communion, and then I'll have Patrick and Davey come up and close us through one more song. Pray with me. Thanks for listening to our sermons podcast. We are a church that's committed to the gospel in the context of family living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. If you'd like to learn more about what God is doing in our lives, reach out to us by emailing info at sojournpdx.org or check out our website. We look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you.